Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. It sounds like you have a really complicated relationship with love. Um, gosh, I don't know. I went to prison for love, and... Of course, I understand now that Elizabeth never really loved me at all. That's clear to me now. There's no question in my mind. But you loved her. But I loved her. Yeah. And um, I loved her enough to sacrifice myself for her. When she came back to the hotel room after she killed her parents on March 31st, 1985, and told me she did it, she asked me to be her alibi. And I told her, you know, that's never going to work. The police never believe boyfriends and husbands and all that. It's just not going to work. You know, can't be your alibi. It's just a dumb plan. And then she had nothing. She just looked at me open-mouthed, and she had nothing. And I couldn't think of anything for, I don't know how long. I was kind of just as stunned as she was. And then this idea popped into my mind uh, in its entirety, just sort of flopped out. Um, I'll take a rap for you. I'll tell him I did it. Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox, and that was Jens Suring speaking to me from his prison pod at Buckingham Correctional. He's referring to Elizabeth Hasem, the first and only woman he's ever loved. They were both convicted of the double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem, and their cases featured in the Sundance Now docuseries Killing for Love. Their story doesn't end there. The double homicide of the Hasems precipitated a second crime, which is still happening as I speak, the ongoing 33-year wrongful imprisonment of Jens Suring. With all his appeals exhausted and no hope of parole, Jens's only chance of release rests with a pardon petition to the governor of Virginia. We still don't know exactly what happened in 1985, But after looking at the evidence, talking with investigators, and unpacking the DNA that was finally tested in 2016, revealing that there are no biological traces linking Jens to the murders, it's time to dig into the real whodunit here. Why is Jens Suring still in prison? And the first quote-unquote suspect in this crime is Jens himself, for he would not be trapped in Buckingham Correctional if he hadn't made the fateful decision to confess to two murders he didn't commit. 
This is where Jens's and my stories diverge. Jens knowingly and willingly falsely confessed to killing Derek and Nancy Hasem. My own false statements were coerced, authored by the police themselves, and were the result of an abusive, illegal interrogation that wasn't recorded. But is there anything more to Jens's false confession than lies, knowingly and willingly given? What about the investigator's duty to verify his statements? What about Jens's right to an attorney? And what about love? Was Jens, a 19-year-old infatuated and on the run, truly in his right mind when he confessed? There was something Martin Sheen said during our interview that stuck with me. Our sensibilities are so clouded by our romantic inclinations. I think we all have infatuations in our teenage years that don't always go quite as far as he did, but you can understand where it could go over the edge and where you think you're flying. And it's like a drug, you know. Uh, uh, our sexuality can, it can dominate all of our behavior to the exclusion of everything else. And, and, and uh, in this case, that's exactly what happened. He had no control over it. But did Jens really have no control? To what degree is a person's behavior affected by sexual and romantic love? I decided to ask an expert, Dr. Lucy Brown. It affects behavior and decision-making tremendously. We kind of take it for granted that we fall in love and then we fall out of love. And we don't think about how we change our lives entirely. I stumbled upon her research through her website, theanatomyoflove.com. Edward VIII gave up his throne. A British king, a British monarch gave up his throne so he could marry Wallace Simpson. People change their lives in dramatic ways because they are in love. Jens wasn't giving up the throne when he confessed, but he did make an incredibly momentous decision. I made a decision when I was a teenager to tell a lie about what happened. I gave a false confession that deprived the Hasem family of the truth about what happened to Derek and Nancy Hasem. And that's my fault. My idea, I came up with that. I carried it through, and it was wrong. And it changed his life dramatically. But what exactly was happening in his brain when he made that decision? Did love clarify or cloud his judgment? In the mystery of Jens's wrongful imprisonment, I expected I'd have to talk to forensic scientists and detectives, but they couldn't help me answer this question. What I needed was a neuroscientist. I'm a professor in neurology at Einstein College of Medicine. Right. I became interested in the physiology of early stage intense romantic love. And I had done a fair amount of brain imaging. It's called functional MRI in people with very simple experiments, just to trace the activity of just plain touching your skin. Mm. You know, where does it go? That was the neurologist, Dr. Lucy Brown's, starting point. But her tests had to go beyond touching the skin if they were going to say anything interesting about romantic love. One of the questions on the passionate love scale is, how much of the day do you spend thinking about your beloved? 
And we asked people that question and many of them said, are you kidding? I never stop thinking about them. You know, I can't sleep because I, I just, all I can do is think about them. Hmm. We rolled them into the scanner and they looked at this headshot. We had them think romantic thoughts about the person. And all the while, the brain scanner was taking pictures of the brain every several milliseconds to see what parts of the brain were active. Interesting. The major finding was that for everyone, there was a very primitive part of the brain that was active. It's at the same level of the brain that controls eye movements, swallowing, just your ability to stand up against gravity. Right. Romantic love starts at that very same level of the brain. It's a reward system that's there for you to search out water when you're thirsty, for you to search out food when you're hungry. This didn't surprise me. For romantic love hits me that way when I think about my fiancé, Chris. It feels deep and primary, like my need for water. But what Dr. Lucy Brown said next framed love in a way I hadn't expected. A way to summarize the feelings that someone has when they're in love is they are addicted to the other person. A lot of us know what addiction means. Mm. And we know what, we've heard a lot about people being addicted to cocaine, for example. Well, when they did brain scanning studies of people who are addicted to cocaine, they saw a very similar part of the brain and one exact same part of the brain light up, be active when they first got a shot of cocaine. So it's very rewarding. You're high when you look at the picture of the person you love. You're high when you're with the person you love. So naturally you want to repeat that experience. You want to be with the person you love and you are driven to do almost anything to be with them and to protect them. We need these addictions. You need to be addicted, in a sense, to water. You can't make a decision about, you know, oh, well, I don't want water now. You know, there's there's a system telling you you need it. We need each other. We are actually addicted to each other for many reasons, for child rearing, also for self-protection, and just for a high quality of life. And that's the way we've evolved. Thinking of romantic love as an addiction in the same category as cocaine addiction might seem to strip it of its lofty magic. That's not the way poets talk about it. But I personally find these kinds of evolutionary mechanics magical in their own way. How amazing is it that a neurochemical addiction gives rise to what we experience as love? But if that experience is at its heart an addiction— What does that say about our own self-control? What does it say about Jens and his decision to sacrifice himself for Elizabeth? So we have a brain system that is part of what's called the social brain, and it's constantly making judgments about other people. Interesting. When you're in love, not everybody, but many people will just turn off that system. When I was in love about 10 years ago, I scanned myself just before I got married. And I was amazed to see that when I was looking at the picture of my future husband, this frontal part of my brain just shut off. (laughs) 
when we look at the, when that's we look not a at good the, sign. <laughs> that's what you know. This certainly affects our judgment. Okay, it's a bit of an insanity, as some people say, romantic love. But I had no idea I was doing this. I was just looking at him, thinking romantic thoughts, and what was happening was my negative judgment areas. Okay, were just turned off, turned down. I was not judging him negatively at all. It sounds cute. And we all know that feeling of giving your boyfriend a pass when he leaves his underwear on the floor, or letting it go when your girlfriend nags you about your underwear on the floor. But in Jens's case, he knew that Elizabeth was using heroin and cocaine, something we'll discuss later. He says she told him directly that she murdered her parents. That's way bigger than underwear. And it's hard to relate to just how much he was willing to minimize. And yet, this reward system that we have going that starts in the brainstem, that is driven by the neurotransmitter dopamine. And when you're high in dopamine, it's just known that you will take more risks. You'll take much greater risks. Hmm. A romantic partner is life's greatest prize. Nature saw this as so important, it became hardwired. We'll do crazy things and sacrifice ourselves for this prize. And there's no choice about falling in love. Or who you fall in love with. One of the more tragic things about the Jens Suring case is how he regrets so much that he doesn't regret the feeling of being in love with Elizabeth. You know, there was a sort of a three-month period between when we started dating and when she killed her parents, <laughs> that was probably the only really happy part of my life. My take on his position is he was doing everything he could think of to save this great experience he was having with this young woman. He was just having one of the best experiences of his life. He was totally in love with her. Hmm. People will do very unreasonable things. And so he's trying to save life's greatest prize that he just thinks he's won. You know, he's doing everything. It's like saving his own life because he's now identifying with her. One thing that occurs to me is, well, we don't say things like, now remember kids, don't flirt and drive. Like, <laughs> you know, like, why don't we think about love as an intoxicant? Is it fundamentally different than intoxication by alcohol or drugs? Like I'm looking back on my own life and thinking when I was young and in love with no context for how to qualify the feelings that I was having and that drive for attachment and how stupid and silly that made me. Uh, you know, I wonder, people have been looking at this case and looking at the tragedy of Jens and Elizabeth and treating it as this extraordinary tragedy. And a part of me pushes back against that and says, well, are, are they really all that extraordinary? I mean, murder aside, like, 
were they just experiencing the normal throes of insanity and it just ended in this terrible, fatal event? Are they relatable? Oh, I agree with that. Well, that's scary. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say he was not in his rational mind. So here's the problem. We are built to, to do this kind of thing. You know, people will kill for love and die for love. Or lie for love. Talking to Dr. Lucy Brown added a whole new dimension to my understanding of why people might falsely confess and why it's often so hard for others who have never been in these extreme situations to understand. As Innocence Project board member Jason Flom points out. If you go out and survey the first thousand people you meet tonight and ask them, would you ever confess to a crime they didn't commit? A thousand of them will go, no. Right. There's nothing you could do to get me to confess to a crime I didn't commit. But we know that, you know, it's the numbers are very high. And among teenagers or adolescents or, you know, anyone under the age of 25, which is when your brain really is actually fully formed, it's much more common because they're more impressionable and easier to trick into confessing. Flom knows this stuff forwards and backwards. And he was as quick to point out that, unlike most false confessions... Unlike mine, Jens wasn't tricked or coerced into making his statements by his interrogators. But that doesn't mean his interrogation was ethical. If the neuroscience of love is one half of understanding why Jens confessed to two murders he didn't commit, the other half is understanding what really happened in his interrogation. What I expected to happen was that I would be sent to Germany for trial on the American charges and um, sent to a German juvenile prison for a maximum of 10 years. And I thought, you know, spending 10 years in a juvenile prison in Germany, which is basically summer camp, um, is an acceptable price to pay to save her life Mm -hmm. from the electric chair. Jens isn't kidding. His attorney, Gail Marshall, walked me through the differences between the German and American penal systems. Germany, as you all may know, has very, very short sentences. Even murder, if you behave yourself in prison, you'll get out in 10 years. And in fact, the last two of those years, you spend out working in a a job and coming back at night so that when you leave, You have not been totally disconnected from society. It's a system we could learn a lot from. When you take that into account, Jens' decision to confess doesn't sound so crazy. And here's the irony. If they had let me see my lawyer, my lawyer would have said, guess what, Jens? Your father's status as a consular diplomat does not actually protect you. And then I would have said, oops, And I almost certainly would have told the truth. And on June the 7th, I actually told the cops what I was going to do. One of the police officers, the same one who had threatened to hurt Elizabeth, asked me on tape, this is all recorded, would you consider pleading guilty to something you didn't do? I thought they were on to me, you know? 
And I was a good kid, so I was just answering the question truthfully, you know. Yeah, I could see it happening. Actually, it's what I'm thinking about doing, you know. And then the next day I did that, right? But the cop didn't want to hear it. That phrase, didn't want to hear it, hits close to home for me. I shouted and repeated the truth for hours to my interrogators, but they didn't want to hear it. They said, no, you're wrong, you don't remember right, until I felt crazy. These were adults, authority figures, and I trusted them. I was interrogated, there were, uh, I think, eight or ten, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, like nine interrogations over four days, and all without counsel. And one of the things that we shared is, I mean, you were just barely out of your teens. And I was 19, you know, and we were very young and everybody else around us was seasoned adults with decades of experience. And, you know, there's a total imbalance of power and knowledge and experience and uh, ability to handle that sort of situation. And, you know, it's, it's really great cruelty. I was not tough at 19. And I'm guessing you were not tough at 20. No, I was mush. (laughs) I I grew up so sheltered. Oh, my God, I grew up so sheltered. And, I mean, you know, uh, anyway, the the, the point is there's there's such an imbalance, such a disparity between the one side and the other side. And I think the only way to ensure that a confession really is voluntary is to actually just follow the damn law. And give the suspect a lawyer. That's all they had to do in my case. All they had to do is follow the law. Yeah. Lying to the police in Virginia um, is a misdemeanor, okay? Giving a false confession at that time was a misdemeanor. And, and I did that, okay? I'm guilty of the misdemeanor of accessory after the fact. But I'm not the first person who broke the law here, okay? Mm-hmm. The first person who broke the law was the cops who did not give me the lawyer that I was entitled to and that I asked for many, many, many times. And without that lawyer to confirm his hope that he had diplomatic immunity, and after four days of interrogation, Jens decided to keep his promise to Elizabeth, to take the risk and confess. And of course I was wrong. I did not have diplomatic immunity. Um, And for decades, for decades, I felt like such an idiot, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, for a long time, I hated myself a lot for being so stupid. I was in the same boat as Jens. For the longest time, I thought that what happened in my interrogation room was my fault. I made excuses for the police's brutal treatment, and I blamed myself. I hadn't been clear. My Italian wasn't good enough. I was stupid. I was a coward. I had gotten myself into this situation without realizing it. And then Dr. Griffiths did the report on on my case, right? And he spent like, I think, four or five months going over this and wrote this 21-page report. Mm -hmm. Are you interviewing Andrew Griffiths? Because he's... You know, he is one of the top international experts on this. 
and he is an ex-chief superintendent. So he's coming at this as a police officer who understands. It's 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 a very you know he's not an academic. He's, well, he's an academic now, but he was one of the top cops in England. <laughs> I decided to take Jens's advice, and I reached out to Dr. Andy Griffiths, an expert on ethical interrogation methods in the United Kingdom, where Jens and Elizabeth were questioned. I was an operational detective um, for over 25 years. And my last role, if you like, was as head of the homicide investigation branch for my police force, which, unlike some American police forces, was quite large at 5,000 officers. I started with the police in 1984. And at that time, Britain was like America in that the rules around custodial interrogation were very lax and there was no training for police officers. So I was sort of brought up in the way of persuading people to admit offences. That was what everyone did. That was the standard approach for the police. Since then, the UK has made great strides in avoiding the problems that still plague American interrogations. The UK police now do not use the term interrogation because interrogation is an accusatory process. So we interview suspects. If we take, shall we say, the Reed technique, which is the predominant and historic American technique, the purpose of the interview is to look for nonverbal clues to deception and then to base a judgment of guilt upon those and then to interrogate to confirm that suspicion. The problem is that a lot of that interview process is, is based on, you know, looking at how much someone is sweating or twitching. It, it's not an evidence-based process. Whereas in the UK, uh, under an approach that's generally known globally as the peace model or conversation management, um, there can be a progression from open questioning to a more accusatory phase. But the accusatory phase is based on objective evidence, not on unreliable physical signs of of nervousness. This sounds obvious, but to this day, people claim to be able to gauge my guilt or innocence based on a glance, a facial twitch, a flick of the hand. It was a relief to hear a career detective call out the bullshit methods that you still see glamorized on shows like The Mentalist. The whole point of proper and thorough police interviewing of people suspected of crime is that it starts with an open mind, that there can be more than one explanation for some information or evidence that you are in receipt of. But as it progresses, the skilled interviewer is comparing what they're being told with other information. There comes a point where, of course, if the police feel there's sufficient evidence, they would charge someone with that offence. But, and this is an important point, they would not pursue the interview to the point of confession. When I asked Dr. Griffiths about how Detective Ricky Gardner conducted Jens's interrogation, he was quick to point out that it was unusual in several ways. He was doing it to protect someone else. And that is unusual but not unique. Then we have the fact of his nationality. Um, so he's a German national been interviewed in Britain about an American capital murder case. That's a pretty unique flavor. Um, and then the fact that 
this took place one year after the murders. When Americans investigated, Ricky Gardner should have been really, really well prepared for this interrogation, but appeared to have no materials with him in terms of photographs or documents, didn't check any of the facts that were given to him by Jens, and was just seemingly in indecent haste to close the case and accept what Jens said as the truth. What happened with this interrogation was that Gardner entered the room in the fullest belief that Soring had committed these crimes, either because of something Soring said to him before the interrogation started or because of an opinion he formed during the case. And then they interviewed Soring for 12 hours, or interrogated Soring for 12 hours. There was very, very little actual information obtained. Most of the interrogation was a negotiation about whether Soring would admit it or not. Soring asked loads of questions about talking to his embassy, about what would happen to him. It, it was a sort of negotiation phase. Then right at the, right at the very end, Soring uh, admits the, the crimes and gives a scenario. That scenario he gave was what I looked at in terms of verifying that against the crime scene, which is what should have happened I see. in the actual interrogation. And there were a couple of very, very large discrepancies in terms of the crime scene. Can you tell me a little bit about those discrepancies? Well, the biggest example was in terms of Mrs. Haitian's clothing. Um, he was asked a single question by Gardner about what was she wearing, to which Jens replied, jeans. There was no further questioning on that point. It was left at that. However, we know from the post-mortem pictures that Mrs. Hayson was wearing a neck-to-ankle, what used to be called a house coat, which is a one-piece garment, effectively the same shape as a dress. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge inconsistency between what Jens is saying she was wearing and what the crime scene evidence says she was wearing. But Gardner never asked another question about that. Hi, listeners. Amanda Knox here, host of the podcast, The Truth About True Crime. If you're a fan of our show, be sure to check out season two of Sundance Now's original audio drama, Exeter, now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Picking up where season one left off, Detective Colleen Clayton, played by Jean Triplehorn, and her partner Pruitt, played by Ray McKinnon, follow a trail of confessions that lead them back to Exeter's most infamous unsolved crime, the brutal murder of two teenage lovers. Colleen and Pruitt must fight to maintain order as the renewed investigation rips open eight years' worth of old wounds in their small southern town. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. In fact, a lot of people I talked to brought up these discrepancies in Jens's confession. Here's his attorney, Gail Marshall, again. And one of the arguments uh, that I made in the habeas case was it was totally untrustworthy, the confession, because he had so many mistakes. He said that Mrs. Hayson was wearing jeans. She was wearing a floor-length flowered housecoat. He had some bodies in the wrong place. Um, and he had the table setting different from what the police found it to be. I said to the prosecutors, look, this man's trying to confess. If he's trying to confess, 
Why would he give you a reason not to believe him? The information he gave was wrong. It wasn't a little wrong. It was totally wrong. Why would Detective Gardner and Prosecutor Updike ignore or fail to notice these discrepancies? For one or two reasons. Either malevolently, because he knew that it contradicted the crime scene and didn't want to introduce the inconsistency, or negligently, because he just wasn't well enough prepared. I can't say which, because I'm not in his head. But... If you have someone saying to you, yes, I committed a murder and the victim was wearing a pair of jeans and they clearly were not, then that is the type of issue that a well-trained interviewer now would deal with. In this case, Soaring is either looking for clues from Gardner as to what to say or he has derived his crime scene information from a third party. Well, that third party in this case would obviously be Elizabeth because I think... We are stretching the bounds of credibility for it to be the case that neither Elizabeth or Jens were involved in this killing. Basically, whatever Jens said was accepted. Ricky Gardner just accepted what Jens said and didn't challenge its accuracy at all. So even though Jens's confession was filled with discrepancies, even though there's evidence he was intentionally lying to save Elizabeth, even though it was conducted without a lawyer, and even though he recanted it long before his trial, those words stuck to him. They led a jury to find him guilty. Why is it so hard for people to believe that someone could falsely confess? That's a really good question. I think it's because it's a common sense notion that you or I sitting here on the phone talking to each other under no pressure, not seeking to protect anyone else, if we were accused of something, would say, no, that's not right, I didn't do that. But only a minority of people, yourself included, have been in these situations where the pressure is unrelenting and the escape route is presented, you know, in the coercion case, of just trying to stop this horrible experience. But in Jens's case, he wasn't coerced. And that seems to make it all the more damning. The only thing that was proven in that interrogation was that Jens had lied. And because he had lied, to this day, in many people's minds, he must be guilty of everything else. It's damning to those who hold the notion that it's the king of evidence. And this is something that, you know, various academics, both American and British and other nationalities have been researching and they have found a significant body of evidence both in terms of exonerations and also you know academic research that shows us that people in certain situations will confess to quite serious and horrific crimes when they are not involved yeah and, and that doesn't tell us that that the confession should be banned what it tells us is that it needs to be regulated and supported by other evidence. So what does Dr. Griffiths make of Jens's confession overall? My assessment of his confession, based on what I've read, is it's unreliable. And that was my conclusion, that because of these errors around the crime scene, um, it's an unreliable confession. And therefore, if it's a major pillar of his conviction, in the UK, I'd be saying this needs to go for a retrial. 
In terms of Jens's pardon petition, having an expert like Dr. Griffiths lend his credibility to your case is a huge deal. But it's not just about the case. It's also about not feeling crazy. And then Dr. Griffiths did the report on, on my case, right? And it says that among teenagers, right? And I was 19 when this happened. Among teenagers, the leading cause or the leading reason for giving a false confession is not actually police intimidation, hmm. like it happened with you, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, among teenagers, the leading reason for giving a false confession is to protect somebody else. Mm. And this was for the first time in my life, somebody telling me that what I did was not that unusual. For decades, I felt like a freak. How could you be so stupid, Jens? How could you be so stupid yeah. to walk into a police station and, and, and tell them you did something you didn't do? For the psychopath girlfriend of yours, right? How could you be that dumb? I hated myself, you know? And it was such a relief to me. And I, was, I, I just felt so grateful that's the main thing. I felt so grateful to Dr. Griffith hmm. that, that this burden was off me. That I could, you know, I, I could stop hating myself. Yeah. What I did was stupid, but it, it was almost normal. I was not a freak because I felt like a freak. My Dr. Griffiths was a false confessions expert named Saul Casson, who shared his research with me and showed me how I had been abused and manipulated. It was only then that I felt relief, that I could forgive myself for what happened, and I could begin to hold the right people responsible. I didn't do anything to put myself in the hot seat in Italy, other than try to help the police. The only people responsible for my wrongful conviction are the Perusian authorities. But Jens's case is a bit more complicated. In the crime of his wrongful imprisonment, there are many responsible parties And Jens is the first among them. Remember, it was his decision to confess. That's not something she manipulated me into. And that was not her idea. This was my idea. And I chose to do that. And and I accept responsibility for that. And I don't blame her for that. But ultimately, what love is about, seems to me, is valuing somebody else above yourself and wanting that, you know, valuing somebody else's happiness above yours. And, you know, that's what I think I demonstrated even back then. Um, I was not just willing, I actually did it. If we take Jens at his word, his confession was an ultimate act of altruism. But would anyone in love act so selflessly? Or is Jens unique? Dr. Lucy Brown had something to say on this account. There is a scale for selfless love. It's called agape by the psychologist. And it has questions like, I would rather suffer myself than let my partner suffer. Hmm. Or I would endure all things for the sake of my partner. Hmm. And people have different scores for this. Some people will score nearly zero on this, you know, but other people will be at a 10. We can't 
all understand really why someone would confess to murders for somebody else, you know, because we're all not the same. Jens hasn't taken the test to see where he scores on the selfless love scale, but it's hard to imagine that he'd score low. I sacrificed myself for her. And, you know, I still to this day, I'm not really able to call that decision stupid because part of me is a little bit proud of it. Um, You know, I I had a chance there to, to betray somebody I loved and I didn't. I did, you know, my intention was to protect her from execution in the electric chair, and I did do that, right? You did. Um, she would have been executed in the early 1990s. They would have definitely executed her in the early 1990s, but for me protecting her, you know. If you love somebody, you should love them all the way, I think. Jens admits to his role in his wrongful conviction especially in regards to his false confession, to what he said in that interrogation room. And that is a big pillar of his conviction. But we often forget, in an interrogation room, it takes two to tango. Jens wasn't alone giving false testimony to the open air. There were other people in the room where it happened who played a vital role in the outcome of that interrogation. And those people were representatives from Bedford County. I gave the false confession on Sunday to June the 8th. Monday, June the 9th, we all went to court. And then on Tuesday or Wednesday, they flew back to the United States, the prosecutor and the cop, mm-hmm. Jim Updike and Ricky Gardner. So they only had like, you know, basically Thursday, mm-hmm. right? To do what they should have done, which is to actually investigate whether this confession that they obtained Mm-hmm. could possibly be true or could possibly be false, right? But they didn't do that because on Friday they handed down the indictment. And once they hand down the indictment, that's it. You know, they, they, they stop investigating. Mm-hmm. Now the whole thing becomes about, you know, winning in court and they're no longer looking for alternative theories. They just, they just now they just want to win. But what is the cost of wanting to win? Investigators ignoring other leads a prosecutor relying on bogus forensic evidence, a judge who doesn't see a problem with his personal connection to the victim's family, a jury flooded with sensational media calling Jens the Beast of Bedford. Next time on The Truth About True Crime, we'll look at another prime suspect in the crime of Jens Suring's wrongful imprisonment, Bedford County. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, at SundanceNow.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.